You may be wondering, from the song we have just sung, why does this chorus include this line, yes, as your days, your strength shall be? It's actually a quotation or an echo from a, from a verse from the book of Deuteronomy, where God promises his people that he will supply for them strength as long as they will live. That's a wonderful promise, especially when we are faced with situations where uh, challenges, trials continue to prolong. We love to hear when things get better. Uh, it lifts our attitude, our morale, our hope. Whenever we encounter signs that better things are coming, a vaccine has been released, a better year, we hope. Whether those clues or signs are for our national life or for our personal lives or in the life of our church or in the life of our ministry partners or in our, our country or the world at large, we get excited when we see glimmers of hope, things getting better. And even if they're not significantly huge, but just small signs, crumbles of, of hope, it just lifts up your hope, doesn't it? But what about those times when things are not getting better, but worse? What about those moments when instead of crumbs of, and clues of hope and things getting better, what we see before us, what we see behind us, what we see around us is mountains getting bigger and bigger, of things getting worse. What happens when the stories of our lives turn to new chapters that are dark, either a life-threatening illness or a job loss or broken relationships or shattered dreams? And hopes or unmet expectations, each of us have had a share of such chapters in our lives. Last Sunday night in our evening service, uh, it was so encouraging to hear different saints in our congregation share either highlights or challenges they faced last year and how they have seen the Lord work through them. Sometimes when we encounter such difficulty, difficult chapters in our lives, it's easy for us to focus quickly on how we should respond. And the text that we are going to look at this morning indeed takes us on the path of a, of a dark chapter in David's life. And surprisingly, the chapter does not focus on how David responds except to tell us that he's fleeing, that he's escaping. Instead, David, the chapter narrates how the Lord is in control even in the dark chapters of life. And we as the people of God need to be reminded of God's sovereign protection of his people, even when, when dark chapters loom around us, even when it gets tough. And therefore, the message this morning could be summarized in a simple phrase. The chase 
intensifies. The chase intensifies. Let's open God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 19. And we'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 24. As Pastor Taylor already uh, reminded us, if you're visiting with us, we are in this series of, of messages through the book of 1 Samuel. And we are taking one chapter at a time. And today we are in chapter 19. Here's God's word for us this morning. 1 Samuel 19, verse 1. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself, and I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his own hand, and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. And Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with a spear. But he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's, goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David... She said, He is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. When the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillows of goat's hair at its head. And Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me thus? And let my enemy go so that he has escaped. And Michael answered Saul, he said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped. 
And he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naioth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naioth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naioth in Ramah. And he went there to Naioth in Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naioth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, Is Saul also among the prophets? This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let's pray. Ask the Lord to bless his word and the preaching of his word for our hearts. Would you join me in prayer? Father, you are powerful. You're powerful to be with your people, even in the midst of trials. Father, as we listen to your word this morning, we pray that you would speak to our hearts in a way that would edify your people, in a way that would help us see your magnitude, your power, your presence with your people. We pray that Christ would be glorified. We pray that our hearts would be open to hear. We pray that you would work through the presence and power of your Holy Spirit among us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The chase intensifies. Our passage that we just read has four scenes. If you were to break down the narrative, there's four scenes, four movements of the camera from one setting to another. But they all tell one message, and it's a bittersweet message. The bitter taste in this message is that David's trials are increasing. He goes into a new league of difficulties. In the previous chapter, Saul sought to kill David mostly indirectly through the hands of the Philistines. Today we learn that Saul plans to kill David uh, directly, openly. Saul's chasing of David increases in intensity in this chapter, as we have read. This is the, this is the bitter taste. The sweet taste in this chapter is that the Lord's protection of David matches the intensity of the chase. And these are the two big points of the message this morning. If you like taking notes, um, the two points we will look at this morning are the road to kingship is filled with afflictions. The road to kingship is filled with afflictions. And second point, the Lord protects his anointed. The Lord protects his anointed. Let's look at these two moments, at these two points, at these two tastes, the bitter and the sweet. The bitter moment, the bitter message is 
the road to kingship is filled with afflictions. Uh, the intensifying afflictions that David experiences in this chapter are not just general troubles, but specifically open attempts made by Saul to kill David. We see this attempt four times in this chapter. The first attempt in the first scene is in verses 1 through 7. Saul is no longer seeking to hide his agenda to uh, kill David. He now commands his servants and Jonathan to kill David. Look at verse 1. Saul spoke to Jonathan and his son, um, to, to, to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. And Jonathan reveals immediately to David what Saul was planning to do. Jonathan says, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Second attempt, verses 8 and 9. After David had won another victory against the Philistines, we are told that the evil spirit came to torment Saul. It's interesting how this change in Saul or this evil spirit, the visit of the evil spirit is coming right after another victory that David had against the Philistines. Saul, we are told, is sitting in his house with a spear in his hand. Uh, notice verse 9. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. Why would Saul sit with, in his own house holding the spear in his hand? If any house was protected in Israel at the time, it was Saul's house. He was, after all, the king. But he's sitting in his house with a spear in his hand, perhaps a clue of Saul's ongoing fear and insecurity. Add to the fear and insecurity the visit of the harmful spirit from the Lord. As in other days, David was playing the liar to help Saul calm down, but Saul attempted again to kill David with a spear that he had in his hand. And David eluded the spear and escaped from Saul's presence immediately. That was attempt number two. Attempt number three is in the third scene, verses 11 through 17. We're told that Saul did not waste more time. That, that night, Saul sent soldiers to David's house where he was living with Michael, his wife. And the plan was for the soldiers to wait until the morning to capture David and to kill him. That was attempt number three. The fourth attempt is in verses 18 through 24. Saul finds out that David escaped to Ramah, and not just anywhere in Ramah, to one of the outskirts of Ramah, the, the Nayoth area. And Saul finds David. He sends three separate troops of soldiers to capture David and to bring him to Saul so Saul might kill him. When the soldiers, the three troops, each fail, to execute on Saul's command, Saul himself goes to, to find David and, and do the job himself, get it done. But from each of these attempts, David escapes. And how do these four attempts of killing David function in the story of, of this book? Why do we have such a rapid, rapid uh, list of scenes that bring out Saul's attempt, vicious attempt, to go after David and kill him. What do, they, what do these four scenes accomplish? 
Well, they accomplish two purposes. The first one is to tell us that before sitting on the throne, David has to take the path of intense affliction. Before sitting on the throne, David has to take the path of intense affliction. David is the anointed king that God has chosen, that God has anointed. God has already given some some wonderful victories to David in killing the Goliath a few chapters ago and then giving him tremendous victories against the Philistines. Yet nevertheless, even with the promise of a throne looking ahead, even with the ongoing affirmations and confirmations of God's power upon David to win victories against the enemies for God's people, with all those in place, the Lord begins a chapter in David's life in which we have a rapid shot, bullets, if you will, of afflictions that come against David. David is the better king that God promised. In God's eyes, he's the legitimate king. He is the king after God's own heart. But despite being the one on whom the Lord set his affections and planned to raise him up to authority and dominion over his people, his road to the throne, his road to authority and dominion over his people takes the path first of intensifying afflictions. And the four attempts in this chapter to kill David teach us that God's anointed king journeyed to the throne through intensifying afflictions. Friends, this text challenges some of our misguided expectations about suffering that we often have. And here's how, how some of us might be thinking. If I'm doing good, why am I suffering? If I am doing what is right, why are things not turning out well? Friends, the presence of tribulations for Christians, suffering at the hand of godless authorities, is nothing new in the history of Christianity. Assuming or feeling entitled that such suffering should not happen is not the default of Christians in the history of the church. It's rather the exception. Consider the words of Paul when he began planting churches after he had visited uh, various territories in Asia Minor. He preached the gospel. People turned to the Lord, responded to the gospel. They repented and trusted in Christ. They were baptized. They formed churches. And Paul would go back to encourage the churches newly formed. He would set elders among them. And then he would encourage them. And here's what one of the passages says, what Paul would do on his visit back to the churches he had recently planted, Acts 14, 21 to 22. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. The reason we are called to pray for those in authority over us is so that we may live peaceful and quiet lives. Friends, such a condition is the result of praying for our government leaders. It's not the default. It's not the entitlement. 
the road to dominion, the road to kingship, takes the path of afflictions, of intense afflictions. A second purpose that these rapid scenes of, of seeing Saul uh, continue to, to pursue David and seeing David being pursued by, by the king who's still on the throne, a second purpose of these four scenes is that they mark the opening of a long pursuit of David for the rest of this book. These intensifying afflictions are not the only chapter in the book. These four scenes at pursuing David in greater intensity, my friends, are mere the beginning. Saul's chase against David, or of David, lasts until the near end of this book. The notion of Saul seeking to kill David appear from this point on 12 more times in this book. And it will be only in chapter 27, verse 4, that we will hear for the first time that Saul no longer sought David to kill him. This means that the majority of Saul's reign as a king is characterized by this one agenda, to seek to kill God's anointed king. Now take a moment to consider this reality. All four sections of this chapter and the, the rest of, or the majority of the rest of this book will focus on the story of Saul chasing after David. The refrain we will hear over and over again for the next eight chapters is that Saul will seek to kill David. And we're invited to follow the ups and downs of the drama of Saul's chase after David. If we pause for a moment and consider all the kings of the Old Testament that were reigning over God's people, of all the kings that the Lord had raised to reign over his people, to shepherd them, of none do we hear such a long-drawn account of being chased and sought after to be killed than about David. Can you think, can you think of another Old Testament king who experienced such intense and long chasing? Think about it. David is the only one. Why is this part of David's experience? And of all the kings of the Old Testament, of no one do we hear that he's a king after God's own heart to the extent that we hear it about David. Lord, if, if David is the one on whom you have set your affections with such intensity, why is, why is he experiencing such a long, drawn-out journey to the throne filled with intensifying afflictions? One answer to consider is because unlike any of the other Old Testament kings, David's rise to kingship 
becomes a pattern, a type for Christ in the, Old Testament, in the New Testament. No other Old Testament king is used by God to create such a clear and conspicuous pattern for the reign of Christ than David's life. So to read of the intensifying afflictions that came upon David as he journeyed towards the throne is not an accident in God's plans. The Lord is using David, the true and better king, yet not yet the recognized king, to set the pattern for how Christ will come to his people as truly the even better king, the ultimately legitimate king. The journey to the throne took Jesus on the path of intense afflictions and suffering. And just as David proved to be innocent in his dealings with Saul, yet was chased in order to be killed, so also Jesus came to be the true and better king. But instead of being received by his own people, he was rejected by them. The Gospel of John points out as early as chapter 5 that the Jewish leaders were intent on killing Jesus. And for the remaining of the Gospel of John, Jesus is, is bringing up why people want to kill him. Or he's teaching his disciples to expect and not be surprised that he will be killed at the hands of the leaders in Jerusalem. That refrain goes through the Gospels from the beginning. It's not just a story that shows up at the end. David's intensifying afflictions set the pattern for us to understand our ultimately better king, Jesus. In God's kingdom, the road to the throne is filled with afflictions and with thorns. David walked through them. Jesus not only walked through them, but wore the crown of thorns. And unlike David, Jesus did taste death at the hands of those who chased after him. But God rose him from the dead so that those who repent and trust in him can be brought into his kingdom. Oh, friends, if you hear this message, this is a wonderful message of the gospel that we proclaim Sunday after Sunday, that those who have rebelled against God can be reconciled with God by turning to the king, the ultimate king, the better king, who suffered in our place the punishment that we deserved for our sins. And yet God vindicated him, took him through the, the valley of death, and rose him from it, giving him life, resurrecting him on the third day, so that through him God would give life, new life, to all those who trust and repent of their sins. Well, friends, if you have never trusted in Christ, if you have never turned away from your sins, I encourage you to do so today. But for those of us who have trusted in Christ, for those of us who have turned to the Lord, we must remember that the Lord did not merely suffer in our place to take the punishment of our guilt. The sufferings of our Lord are also a path on which we are called to journey. Not in the place of our sins, not as punishment for our sins, but to remember the words of Jesus that the servants of the master will not be treated any differently than the master himself. If they have persecuted the master, they will persecute those who follow him. So friends, consider that the road to kingship is filled with suffering. This is the first major point in these four attempts to see David in this chapter. 
You know, the first major point of this, of this chapter is that the road to kingship is filled with affliction. There's a sweet point that the Lord shows us in the midst of the bitter taste. And this is point number two. The Lord protects his anointed. The Lord protects his anointed. In each of these four scenarios of intensifying affliction, the Lord protected David one way or another. And the Lord's protection uses a variety of means through people like Jonathan and Michael, through the personal responsibility and David's ability to evade a spear thrown at him by Saul, and through the supernatural means as well, as we will see. If we look at these means of escape, every, every one of these scenes, we hear about David. David either was brought in into the presence of Saul with that threat being removed, or David escaped. If we look at these means of escape, some are natural means. God uses natural means to provide rescue and protection. But God is also able to use supernatural means for protection. As we get to see both in this chapter, let's notice, let's notice how the Lord uses various means of bringing protection and rescue for his people. And I pray that as we look at these means, that it would encourage us. And it would give us greater confidence in the Lord who is able to watch over his people. Let's look at the first of the natural means of protection that we see in this chapter. Some natural means. Uh, we actually see three natural means of protection in this chapter. The first, the Lord uses Jonathan's reasoning with his father on behalf of David. Notice Jonathan's argument. When he hears that Saul, his father, aims to, to kill David, Jonathan not only informs David so he would be prepared, but Jonathan takes his responsibility to speak to his father. And he has a clear argument, a thought-out uh, rationale. Jonathan reminds his father that David has not sinned against the king, that he's innocent. Jonathan reminds his father the benefit David has brought upon the nation uh, when David risked his life to fight against a Goliath, and the Lord used that battle to bring a great victory over and for the people. Jonathan reminds Saul that, that Saul rejoiced at that victory. Jonathan pleads with his father not to sin by killing David without cause. In a sense, Jonathan is the voice of conscience for David. Reminds him, sets the record straight. David has not sinned against Saul. If Saul will plan to kill David, he will do so by sinning against David by going against everything that David has done. Surprisingly, the Lord uses the rationale, the, the clear argumentation of Jonathan to, to winsomely influence Saul to stop the chase. And Saul vows that David will not be killed. A point here is, the Lord can use godly people to be means of providing rescue and protection. Unfortunately, uh, this protection that happened in scene number one was short-lived. It only lasted for one scene until the camera moves to the second scene. But nevertheless, 
in that first incident, the Lord used the influence of godly people who would winsomely and wisely bring arguments to protect uh, against sinning, protect, protect others against sinning. A second means the Lord uses is natural instincts and abilities. We see that in David. When Saul uh, got, gets overcome again by jealousy and by the spirit uh, from the Lord that harmed him, Saul wants again to kill David with a spear. And what does David do? For some reason or another, he's able, as he's playing the liar, he's able to evade the spear and to escape. Trusting in God's protection, my dear friends, does not mean that we don't use our good judgments or our responsibility to act. Even our natural instincts and abilities are from the Lord. God protects His people in various ways, and one of the means is to give us the strength to do our part wisely in responding to affliction. One Bible teacher once said, sometimes the clearest evidence that God has not deserted you is not that you are successfully past your trial, but that you are still on your feet in the middle of it. Friends, there are times when we feel at the end of the rope in terms of our abilities. And in those times, God's protection can take the form of simply keeping you standing, helping you do the one next step that you can do, or just continuing to be alive in the midst of what feels so overwhelming. God can use our abilities, and God can empower us to use our responsibilities well to do our part in the midst of afflictions. Third, the Lord uses Michael's efforts to both instruct David to escape that very night and her efforts to buy David time from Saul's soldiers. But in this third scene with Michael, the details get a little messy. It's a little less clear because Michael's way of doing it is less, perhaps we might say, orthodox. The details puzzle us. Uh, Michael's way of seeking to protect David's life, I use deception of her father on multiple accounts. Michael's deception of her father is not giving us a pass on using deception in our dealings. It simply shows the dysfunctional relationship in Saul's family. In addition, Michael used an image uh, to pretend it was David. Now, the, the Hebrew word for an image is a word that has been used elsewhere for idols. Another way to say it is Michael used a, an idol statue, put it in bed, covered it with clothing, to make it appear from a distance that David was truly lying in bed. So if Saul's soldiers speak into the room where she pretended that David was still lying, they could see that someone is still in bed. That he's David, at least from a distance. The question is, what was an idol statue doing 
in Michael's home. Remember decades ago when Samuel brought a great revival among the people um, of Israel, when Samuel was still the judge, he called the people to turn away, to put away their idols. They were referring to these kind of statues. Apparently, Kish family, the Kish family has never heard about Samuel. They've never turned away from, from having statues as idols in their homes. And Saul inherited them and passed it on to their kids. And here's Michael with a statue idol in her home. The men who entered, Saul's soldiers who entered the house, did not find in the bed one who was about to die. Someone put it, instead, they found one who never lived. While this trick of using an idol statue worked to help David gain more time, one wonders, what does this say about Michael's spiritual condition? Saul has not kept idols away from his family or from his kids. And now his kids kept them around. Another sign of the, of the dysfunctionality in Saul's family. Despite these concerning details, the Lord used even less godly people to provide rescue and protection. That does not mean, and it should not mean, that we can embrace compromises in our lives. It simply shows that the Lord can use even imperfect people to act in ways that accomplish his cause. Be able to trust that the Lord can use even imperfect people, even less godly means to accomplish his plans. Each of these scenarios show God's ability to use natural means to bring rescue and protection for his anointed. But the means that get, gets most of our attention in this chapter is the fourth scenario, where God provides protection to David through supernatural means. And we see this in the fourth episode in verses 18 through 24. The events are pretty simple, but the significance of these events uh, are weighty. So let's consider them. When Saul finds out where David escaped that night, where he was hiding, namely in Ramah, he sends his troops to Ramah to capture David. And when the, the, the troops arrive at Ramah, the Holy Spirit overtakes them, overtakes them in such a way that these soldiers, instead of drawing out their swords or instead of drawing out their whatever battle gear they had, instead of doing that, they begin prophesying and joining the team of prophets that was around Samuel at Ramah. So instead of capturing David, instead of executing Saul's commands, these soldiers execute what the Lord caused them to do. Saul sends a second round of soldiers. And the second round of soldiers experiences the same reality, the same outcome. Then Saul sends a third set of soldiers. And the third set of soldiers fall under the same trance, under the same power of the Spirit. None of them were able to carry out Saul's decree to capture David. Instead, they carry out what the Holy Spirit caused them to do, and that is to prophesy. Even though these soldiers were under the command of Saul to carry out his decree, 
this event shows whose command and whose power is weightier. The Lord's command and authority was greater than Saul's. Saul's soldiers cannot do what Saul commanded them to do. And he begins just laughing here. Who really is in charge of this chase? We're starting to really feel like a little bit like, like Tom and Jerry. Trying to set up traps, trying to, to create movements, plans to capture, and, and all the best efforts prove to be failing. But Saul would not give up. He thinks if the three sets of soldiers were not able to get the job done, oh, he will go and do it himself. Here is an ambitious man who knows what to do to get the job done. He thinks he has it in him. So he goes himself to get to David, trying to kill him. When Saul realizes that uh, he's on his way to Ramah and uh, needs to figure out where exactly Samuel and David are hidden, and he's told where, we are told that even before he gets to Ramah, the Spirit of God came upon him. In verse 23, begins to prophesy all the way for the rest of his journey to Ramah. So far, he experiences the same effects as his soldiers. He, the king, who issued the command to capture David, is overcome by the power of God's spirit. He is not able to resist the spirit of God. Here is an event in which the spirit of God is irresistible. He enters Ramah as a king set on capturing David. But he enters prophesying and doing not what he wanted to do, but what the Lord wanted him to do. And he becomes, becomes even funnier as we go along. There's more to Saul's reaction. Not only is his ambition proving to be totally powerless against the power of God's Spirit, he not only enters Ramah prophesying, once he arrives in the presence of Saul, he stripped off his clothes. He lay naked all day and all night. And you wonder, what am I supposed to do with this detail? Here's King Saul, stripped himself of his royal clothing and of all his clothing, perhaps. As one commentator put it, Saul lost the royal attire in the presence of God's Spirit. And this presented a powerful image confirming the prophetic judgments that Saul made earlier in the book. God had rejected Saul as king. So, now in God's presence, Saul would not be permitted to wear the clothing of royalty. Saul went after David to capture him, to kill him, but the Spirit of God took hold of Saul and brought him low, causing him to strip off his own clothing. 
his royal image, his royal symbols, and laying before Samuel, helpless, not in control of himself anymore. God makes a mockery of Saul's attempt to capture David. The one who came to capture and kill lays helpless, naked and in shame. Irony here is unmistakable. As one author put it, the Spirit of God was gently invincible. And it's not just a physical picture of Saul stripping himself off his royal clothes, but the initial proverb that was given to Saul when he became king has developed and changed in its meaning. Remember the phrase that we encountered early on in the book of 1 Samuel, thus it was said, is Saul among the prophets? Remember, if you were with us through this book, that, Saul, that phrase was first used when the Spirit of God had come upon Saul to confirm that he is called to be the king. But the same Spirit that came upon Saul, the same Spirit of God, who assured Saul of rising to the throne, now, after God has turned his face from Saul, the Spirit of God comes to Saul one last time to assure him, not of legitimacy to the throne, but to assure him of illegitimacy on the throne. Here's a king lying unable to protect himself, lying naked and in shame, stripped of royal clothing. Oh, my friends, this is what happens. This is what God does in this act of dramatic delegitimization of Saul's kingship. God is teaching us a lesson here. God laughs at those who seek to fight against him and his anointed. God can humiliate them and bring them to nothing, rendering their threats powerless. And this is what God does with King Saul in this episode. Saul chose to act against the Lord and his anointed. And the Lord showed Saul, who truly is in control. We, the readers, are meant also to laugh at the scene of how lowly God is able to bring King Saul. But our laugh is because God himself laughs at the attempts of those who seek to fight against him and against his anointed. And you'll say, how do we know that God laughs at the scene? This is what David prayed on the night when he escaped from Saul's soldiers. When Saul sent soldiers in scene number three to wait, watch at David's house until the morning to kill him, David wrote a psalm. It's Psalm 59. It's a psalm that Paul wrote or read for us earlier in the service. One of the statements, one of the statements that David made in that psalm is in verse 8. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. David 
prayed, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and declared and revealed to us what God was doing that night, even before Saul came to Samuel, even before Saul sent his soldiers to Samuel, David reveals to us something about how God responds when, when people come against the Lord and his anointed. God laughs. And Saul's actions in the presence of Samuel are indeed God's derision, God's mockery at Saul. For the first time, we see God's attitude. This, is not, this chapter doesn't show us so much what, what David does. This chapter shows us how the Lord is working for David. The one who acts against the Lord and, the one, and his anointed is Saul himself. And the Lord laughs at him, brings him down. And there are several applications we can turn from this episode or this cluster of episodes. First, laugh with God. Laugh with God. We may be vulnerable to fears and hopelessness when we hear and see threats against us, when others fight against the Lord and His people. We may feel increasing anxiety when we, when we see a, a, an administration coming to reign over a country that has an agenda uh, to bring in more policies that are against the moral truth that God reveals to us in His Word. And we can be filled with anxiety and with fear. And worse, we can be filled with a willingness to believe all kinds of suspicious theories. Friends, stop that. Instead, let's look to the Lord who laughs. The Lord doesn't laugh because He takes lightly what is happening or, or somehow disconsidering what is happening as being, oh, this is no big deal. It's rather the laugh of confidence in the Lord who is able to make shame of those who act against him. It's not that somehow the opposition against God's people will ultimately prevail or thwart God's plans. No. Instead, instead of fear, let us remember the laughter of God, that none of God's plans will be thwarted by those who act against the Lord and His anointed. So laugh with the Lord. Not a, not a laughter of lightheartedness. It's a laughter of confidence in the Lord, who's able to use either natural means or supernatural means to protect his people, to protect his anointed, and to bring shame to those who ultimately act against him. Second application is remain vigilant. Remain vigilant. Joining God in his laughter does not mean that the chase is over or that the afflictions in this life are going to disappear. David's journey of fleeing and seeking to escape from Saul will continue for the rest of his book. Remain, so remain vigilant. A third application, take a sober warning. Take a sober warning. 
Some of us, we may think that we can resist God and His Spirit. If we take that path of continuing to resist God and His Spirit, sooner or later, the Lord will prevail over us. And if it's later, He will prevail over us in shame. Pray that the Lord will prevail over our rebellion sooner so that it is in salvation. But sooner or later, the Lord will prevail over us. So take a sober warning. If we do not turn out, if we do not turn to the Lord with surrendering our agendas to Him, the Lord will do for us and against us what He has done for Saul and against Saul. It will not turn out well for us. Third, finally, the final application, choose to trust in the Lord. We should not assume. We should not assume that David's destiny and the details of David's life are going to be our details. God has not called us to be the better king like David. We are not to see ourselves in the place of David in this chapter. Rather, we are supposed to see ourselves as followers of the king whose, Dave, whose path David set. We are followers of the ultimate king that even David looked forward to. And following that king, trusting in that king, recognizing that what happened to him can happen to us, and yet he is worthy to be trusted. David's God is worthy to be trusted. Trust in the Lord in the midst of afflictions. And as the song we have sung earlier, afflicted saying to Christ draw near. We're challenged to look to the Lord. And we're challenged to look at the Lord as being a God who is a refuge in times of difficulties. Who is a shield in times of afflictions. And when the battle seems like losing more and more, when it may feel like we are losing, to remember and not forget, our God will never lose. The cause for which we stand will not fail. The truth of God's kingdom will prevail. So two, two points in today's message, a bittersweet message. The road to, the, to kingship is filled with afflictions. The sweet part is that the Lord protects his anointed. Friends, if David's God is your God, you too can rest assured in God's wonderful protection for us in the midst of a tumultuous race on this earth. Let's sing and praise God of his shield for his people. Let's pray.